Welcome to our weekly podcast. I'm so excited that you've chosen to listen in this week. Um, Today we're in week five of our series on the book of James. The theme of this series is a practical guide for Christian living. You know, I think James is a great book for all Christians, whether you're a new believer, a mature believer, or somewhere in between. It's great for all of us to read, study, and apply because James is so clear in his instruction for what it means to have a sincere faith in Jesus. The Bible teaches us that we are saved by God's grace through faith. But we learn in James that a sincere or genuine faith in Jesus will always produce good works for God. You could say that the good works are evidence of a sincere faith. Now, while James's instruction is certainly practical, it's also challenging. And we've seen that every single week. Just about every verse is a challenge for Christians to examine and align our lives with God's word. We've also said that God's main goal for all of our lives is to make us more and more like Jesus. This process is called sanctification or Christ formation and can be painful at times. But we're learning to deny self, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Last week we were in James 3. And James 3 really talks a lot about the power of the tongue, specifically giving God your heart and the control of your tongue every single day. James chapter 3 ends by talking about how true wisdom comes from God. It doesn't come from the world. We call this godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. If someone is truly in Christ, that person will prove it by the way they live, doing the good works that God has planned in advance for them to do. As we grow in our faith, we learn to serve with Christ-like humility. Humility that ultimately comes from having godly wisdom. So while chapter 3 ends by talking about the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, chapter 4, where we're going to be today, focuses in on the broader topics of worldliness and godliness. You could say that where wisdom is the motivation or the compelling reason behind our actions, worldliness and godliness have a lot more to do with the behavior that's associated with that wisdom. So today's text is another challenging one. I'm going to be straight up with you. It's it's challenging. But by God's grace, we're going to walk through it together. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and to help us live for Christ. And I believe that we're going to be encouraged to turn away from what the Bible calls worldliness and to turn towards godliness as we grow in our faith. So today we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And if you have a physical Bible, you can turn there at this time. And please feel free to use your phone or your tablet. We love to use the YouVersion Bible app here. It's a great app. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In a similar way that the Old Testament prophets spoke to God's people for generations, James uses this portion of his letter to address Christians who are seeking fulfillment, seeking pleasure in the world instead of finding their fulfillment and their purpose in Christ. He begins chapter four with a question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The words fights and quarrels, these are actually military terms. So in the Greek, they're best translated as wars and battles. So you could read this verse like this, what causes wars and battles among you? James is using really strong language here, but He's doing so figuratively. You see, these early Christians, they weren't actually fighting each other to the death, but they were having some major, major problems. Brothers and sisters in Christ were bitter towards one another. What James has to say throughout this portion of his letter, although hard to hear, is extremely applicable for our lives today. It's applicable because we all experience similar things in our own lives, in our families, in our friendships And certainly in the church at times, much like the hurtful words that we sometimes say, you know, the power of the tongue, Um, these fights, these quarrels, these are just symptoms of a much greater problem. So the question has to be asked, what's the real source of these kinds of conflicts in our lives? Well, James tells us that these external fights, these quarrels are the result of an internal battle. He says they come from a desire for personal pleasure, the sinful desires of the flesh. Today, I want to talk about our desires and how when our desires are not lined up with God's desires, when when our will is not lined up with God's will, the result will be exactly what James describes in this portion of his letter. The result will be fights and quarrels. So I'm going to share five descriptors of desires that will help us better understand and will help us apply today's passage. So if you're taking notes, the first descriptor is this, that our desires are often dangerous. So when our desires are not what God desires, our desires are often dangerous. James chapter 4, verses 1 through the first half of verse 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And these first two verses are bold. The Christians to whom James wrote were not literally killing each other, at least we don't think they were, but the rest of God's word, and certainly what we see in our world today, reminds us that sinful desires can actually lead to murder. Now that might be on the far end of the spectrum, but our sinful desires can actually lead to that. I mean, you look in the Old Testament, it certainly did with Cain and Abel. Um, Two brothers, one of which killed the other, Genesis chapter 4. And then you see David and Uriah. I mean, this is David, a man after God's own heart, 
had Uriah killed when he was at battle because he wanted his wife. He wanted something that wasn't his. James is reminding us that fights, quarrels, and even murder are predictable outcomes of our sinful desires. You know, if someone stands in the way of someone else's desires, um, history shows us that people are willing to do whatever it takes to eliminate the competition in order to get what they want. The Bible tells us that the apostles, um, particularly Paul, uh, these men were often persecuted because of the envy and sinful desires of those who were opposed to Jesus. Uh, James's readers probably hadn't committed real murder because of their desire for worldly pleasure, but they were using their words in hurtful ways, and they were fighting with their brothers and sisters in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said that these kinds of things are actually the same as murder. He said, you've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So our desires, when they don't line up with God's desires, friends, they're often dangerous. And we know this to be true. In our families, when we want something that someone else has, maybe wealth, material possessions, status, a a job that someone has. I mean, these sinful desires ultimately lead to fights, quarrels. they, They lead to wars and battles. In the church, when you see how God has gifted another person, you know, maybe you're watching from a distance, you're seeing how people serve and how God is using their lives to be kingdom workers. I think it's easy to believe the lie that they must be better or more talented than you. That kind of comparison, for one, kills contentment. And it ultimately leads to fights, quarrels, it leads to wars and battles. I know that talking about murder might sound a little extreme, but every murder that's ever happened, every war that's ever been fought, and every relational fight that we've ever had with another person has always been the result of the selfish, sinful desires in us. These kinds of things are predictable outcomes, predictable results of trying to find fulfillment in this world instead of finding our fulfillment and purpose in Christ. So our desires are often dangerous. The second descriptor is this. Our desires are often selfish. Our desires are often selfish. James chapter 4, the last half of verse 2 and verse 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The irony here is that James was writing to a group of Christians who served a God who graciously, lovingly, and generously gives all good and perfect gifts. He had already reminded them about this truth. You go back to James chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God wanted to give his people true and lasting pleasure, true and lasting joy. But here they refuse to ask. Instead, they prefer to seek out their own desires at the expense of others. And when they did ask, James tells us that they asked with all the wrong motives. Instead of seeking God's will, they sought their own. Instead of asking for God's direction, they wanted to go their own way. Their desires were selfish. Now, I want you to understand 
that asking God for things is not always selfish. I mean, how are we to ask God for things? It's primarily through prayer, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 reminds us that we should pray about everything. The, the entire verse says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So friends, we can and we should pray about everything. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Some of you might be thinking, well, I've prayed about the needs in my life. Or I've asked God for things and he still hasn't given me what I've asked for. I would say that while the end of verse 2 is important, he says you do not have because you do not ask, the key is verse 3. He says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If I'm honest, I want to let you know that sometimes I have to stop. I have to think and ask myself, am I praying and asking God for things with the right motives, with the right heart? If what I'm asking for is all about me, myself, and I, or if I'm asking for things that I can spend on my own pleasures, the Bible reminds us that you know I can be sure that my motives are all wrong. There are some important principles that we can be reminded about prayer today. I would say, number one, prayer is not a magic wand. We've talked about this before. It's not something that we can just wave around and magically change our circumstances. I mean, if we've learned anything thus far in James, it's that when trials of many kinds come our way, you know, God wants to use those to grow our character. He wants to use those trials to develop us more and more into the image of Jesus. So instead of walking around and using prayer like a magic wand, we can trust that God has a plan. Um, The second thing is that prayer is not a fire extinguisher. You know, we've got a few fire extinguishers around the building, and they sit behind glass. Hopefully, they never have to be used, but they're there in case of emergency. And I'm afraid that sometimes we only use prayer in case of emergency. Now, again, we can and should pray about everything, and we should pray in difficult times. But prayer is not just for emergencies. It's to be used all the time. The third thing that comes to mind is that prayer was never meant to be a bargaining tool. I'll give you an example. I think sometimes we say something like this, you know, God, if you do this in my life, or if you give this to me, then I'll never make this kind of mistake again. I'll never go to that place again. I'll never hang out with those kinds of people Again, So prayer was never meant to be a bargaining tool. Instead, prayer is a partnership with God. It really is a gift. And I think in its simplest form, prayer is having a conversation with God, a conversation like you'd have with your best friend. So prayer should be our first choice, not our last resort. Let me, let me say that again. Prayer should be our first choice, not our last resort. Our prayers should help us connect with God relationally. They should help us worship him authentically. As we pray, we learn to put God's agenda first in our lives. Our prayers should teach us to depend on God for everything. I would say that when we pray, um, that should lead us to forgive others. And it provides an opportunity for us to repent of our sins and receive God's grace and forgiveness in our own lives. You know, prayer helps us to depend on God's strength. It helps us to depend on his power as we live for him. So it's not wrong to pray for our own needs. You know, we can and should pray about anything and everything. But there's a difference between needs and greeds. 
I would say that God loves to meet our needs. He's a perfect parent. He's a perfect heavenly father. Meeting our needs actually brings him joy. But we need to understand that God takes no pleasure at all in meeting our greeds. Our greeds are selfish. They lead us away from God, and they ultimately lead to things like fighting and quarreling, wars and battles. To try and use God to obtain our own desires, to try to obtain worldly pleasures, is an adulterous form of prayer. James is reminding us that when a person prays only for what brings worldly pleasure, without regard for the good of others or for God's will and for his glory, that person is praying selfishly and should not expect an answer. So our desires are often selfish. The third descriptor is this, that our desires are often worldly. Our desires are often worldly. James chapter 4, verse 4, this is what we read. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And James is getting kind of rough, isn't he? <laughs> he's getting kind of rough with his readers. And he's doing so because this topic is such a big deal. Instead of referring to them as brothers and sisters, like he had done in previous chapters, he calls them adulterous people. Can you imagine if I stood up to preach on a Sunday and that's how I referred to our church? Man, I don't think the reception would be well. I don't think the reception would be very kind. Well, the word adulterous here in the Greek is best translated as adulteresses. So this is the feminine form of the word. What does this mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. And when his people turn away from him in sin, it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or adultery. One of the best examples is in Jeremiah 3, verse 20. It says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. So when describing this truth, and specifically this verse in James chapter 4, pastor and author David Platt wrote these words, "Um, The more we are conformed to the pattern of this world, living like this world and loving this world, the more we betray our God and cheat on him. Friends, this is serious stuff. You know, in our culture, and even in the church, it's so easy to get off track and to start to seek after our own pleasures, to pursue our own worldly pleasures. Instead of finding our fulfillment, our purpose, and our satisfaction in the Lord. And we try and satisfy our own desires with things like, like bigger houses. You know, we try to keep up with the Joneses. Nicer cars, more noticeable positions at work. I would say that today, even Christians I've seen will do anything and everything to climb the corporate ladder regardless of who they hurt along the way. It's like we have a greater desire to have more followers on Facebook and Instagram than we do about pursuing holiness and glorifying God with our lives. And we start to live for what we think is best for us in this world. We pursue worldliness instead of storing up treasures in heaven, instead of pursuing godliness and holiness. So James is clear. And he's talking about himself as well, but our desires are often worldly. The fourth descriptor is this. Our desires are often envious. Our desires are often envious. James 4 verse 5 says, Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit 
he's caused to dwell in us. Now, I want to be upfront with you about this verse. Um, this is one of the most challenging verses to interpret um, in the entire book of James. In fact, this week, I read three different commentaries uh, from three different authors whom I trust, and they all said something different. Now, there are several reasons why there's a lot of debate about the meaning of this verse, and I'm not going to get into all of that today. So for the sake of simplicity, I think I'd like to focus in on the word spirit. We're going to focus on the use of the word spirit. What does James mean when he says spirit? He says he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. I believe that James is saying that the spirit of life that God has put in all of us is prone to envy. There's a difference between what we call the spirit of life and God the Holy Spirit. God gives us his Holy Spirit when we follow Christ, when we're in Christ. However, the Holy Spirit doesn't cause us to envy. He doesn't lead us to feel discontent, resentful towards others, or to want what others have. Envy is not part of God's character, so that would make no sense at all. The Bible teaches us that God breathed life into us. What makes us human beings, as well as spiritual beings, is what we call the spirit of life. That's what God put into us when he breathed life into us. Now, the spirit of life that's unique to all human beings is prone to the sin of envy. Actually, a more accurate translation and interpretation of this verse is that it is the human spirit that is prone to the sin of envy. Some commentators believe that James is actually paraphrasing what we read about Noah's story in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis 8, where God says this about the human heart. Genesis 6 verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So in Noah's day, the people had rejected God's leading in pursuit of worldly pleasures. Well, James's readers had also rejected God by befriending the world. And in befriending the world, their sinful desires resulted in the sin of envy, jealousy. God created us to desire him, not the world, and to find our fulfillment and purpose in him, not the world. But we are all sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We're sinners by nature because of the sin of our first father, Adam. And we're born with a sin nature. But we're sinners by choice as well. And our sin nature often leads us to be envious, to be jealous of others. Our desires are often envious. So when we pursue friendship with the world, The result will be sinful desires that are often dangerous, selfish, worldly, and envious. Instead of running to the world, trying to find our fulfillment in the world, James encourages us to do something else. And this is where we see the hope in this kind of message. James encourages us to run to God. So where the first five verses highlight some of the descriptors of our sinful desires. The last five verses highlight what it looks like to desire God and to find fulfillment in him. So the fifth truth for today is this, that our desire must be for God. James chapter four, verses six through 10. This is what we read. But he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. As James exposes our sinful nature and our worldly tendencies, he also reminds us about an incredible truth that the grace of God is so much greater. Now, I'm going to be the first person to admit that it's not easy to resist the appeal of this world. And there's certainly a lot of areas in my own life where God is still working and making me more and more like Christ. Areas that I need to purposefully turn from the world and turn to God. But even when I struggle, even when I fall short, I'm reminded that I can run to God. I can trust his leading and I can rely on his forgiveness and grace. And you know what? You can too. The Bible reminds us over and over again that God is merciful, gracious, that he is slow to anger and that he's a loving father. This portion of James's letter is an incredible promise. Friends, it's the best kind of promise, a promise that we can build our lives on. We're reminded that God gives more and more grace, an unlimited supply of grace. When we respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives, we respond through confession and repentance. We humbly submit our lives under the authority of God and his word. God is able to grow our faith and to use our lives to be kingdom workers. That's when we experience real joy, a kind of satisfaction that can only be found in Christ. Even though we often fight each other because of our desires, even though we may have selfish desires, even though our desires may be worldly, and even though our desires are envious, God offers us his grace. I think a great truth to remember, a great truth to build your life on today is this, that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Friends, this is an amazing truth. But the Bible says that this truth is only for the humble. That's such an important word in today's text. Now, the kind of humility that James is talking about here um, is not like the, the humility that God wants us to have necessarily towards other people. We like to say that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? It's being mindful of the needs of others. The kind of humility that James is talking about is learning to resist the devil with God's help. It's repenting of our sin and drawing near to God. It's pursuing holiness. That word holiness just means set apart. It means being set apart for God and set apart to be used by God. This kind of humility is trusting God completely with our lives. It's submission. It's raising the white flag and saying, I surrender. God, you can have control of my life. I would say that humility is necessary, but God's grace is the key. The focus here is on God and his grace. So if you want to overcome selfish, worldly desires that lead to things like fights and quarrels, wars and battles, then you must desire God first in your life. You know, the counter-cultural Christianity that James writes about all throughout his letter, can only be lived out by the grace of God. When we start to veer off the path that God wants us to go down, 
we're reminded that we can turn back to God in humble repentance, receiving God's grace that is never ending, a kind of grace that enables us to live for him.